Welcome to uh, Desert Hills Baptist Church here on Fresh Start Sunday. We are thrilled to have you with us, worshiping with us today. I am excited to have people here in the service. Last Sunday we had one service and you would have thought the rapture happened and there was a remnant left, all right? Uh, but I'm glad to have bodies back in the building, people back in the house, and, and you're in the, the place you need to be today because we're going to give our theme message for the year. And all year long, we're going to have an emphasis throughout the year on this idea, this thought, this uh, uh, moment that we can take in understanding that God can, whatever the situation is, God can. And so uh, each month there's going to be an emphasis, January, financial health, February, Bible reading, March, sharing your faith, April, and so on. And we're going to challenge you as, as you think about this card, these things are not, um, these tasks are not, or these uh, uh, goals are not uh, a panacea for all of your spiritual problems, all right? You, you check the box of Bible reading and expect everything to change instantly in your life. That's not the idea, but here's the deal. If everything's falling down and apart in your life and you're in the Bible, we understand and you understand that you're going to get comfort. If your financial life is in tumult and you seek the Lord first, we understand his promises found in his word. We understand that if we're dealing with some circumstances in our life that we can't handle in our own, and we are praying, we've made a commitment to pray, then we're going to be able to cast all of our care on him. Why? Knowing that he cares for us. So I want you to take this out, look at it for just a moment, and then at the end of the service, I'll bring it back again, and we'll talk about this. But take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Psalm chapter 126. Psalm chapter 126. Now, this group of psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 are known as the songs of ascent or the songs of degrees. They were historically sung as Jewish pilgrims made their way ascending to the city of Jerusalem on their way to participate in one of the three key Jewish feasts. Now, many have attributed these 15 psalms being added to the Hebrew hymn book, which we know as the book of Psalms, by King Hezekiah, who we're going to talk about this morning. Now, in Isaiah chapter 38, Hezekiah is wanting assurance that God is going to defeat the Assyrian army and is needing to be healed from an illness that he's acquired. God allows a miracle to take place and turns the sundial back 10 degrees, heals Hezekiah, and assures him that he's going to defeat the Assyrians. Now, as a result of this, the songs of degrees were added to the book of Psalms. Now, the setting for this psalm takes place as the country of Assyria has conquered most of the nations surrounding the southern kingdom of Judah, including the northern kingdom of Israel known as Samaria. Sennacherib, the evil Assyrian king, has now moved his army south, conquering all the 46 major cities of Judah, and there's only one stronghold left, the city of Jerusalem. Now, the siege of Jerusalem lasts for months. All the supplies begin to run out. They eat all of the animals, all the cows, and all the goats, and all the doves, and even the horses, and the donkeys, and anything else they can find. Now, most of the grain has also run out. There's not really any bread. Water is in low supply. 
Hezekiah finally agrees to pay a tribute to Sennacherib, but Sennacherib refuses to receive it. Now, unless something changes, Sennacherib will break down the walls of Jerusalem with overwhelming force, or the people are going to starve to death. Now, there were between 6,000 and 10,000 people in and defending Jerusalem, according to historians, with the Assyrian army outside the walls that numbered over 200,000. Think about that. Now, the Assyrians were masters of using brutal warfare to conquer. What they would do is when they'd conquer a city, they would take the bodies of those they would conquer and they would impale them on the main roads leading up into a city. Not only that, they would take the skins off the bodies of those they conquered. They would take those skins and dry them and nail them to the walls of these conquered cities to be a beware sign to anybody that would stand against them. They would euthanize the elderly. They would euthanize the sick and the weak, and they would ravage and enslave anybody they could use. The Assyrians also use psychological warfare. In fact, if you study military history, the Assyrians were some of the uh, progenitors of psychological warfare. They would take the body parts of those they conquered, the heads and the arms and the legs and the feet, and they would catapult these body parts over a city's walls uh, to get the people behind the walls that were being siege in siege mode to think twice about standing against them. Not only that, they would get spokespersons that spoke the language of the cities that they were trying to conquer, and they would get them to, to go up towards the walls of the cities so the people behind the walls uh, of these, these people that were trying to be uh, overcome, if you will, or the Assyrians were trying to overcome, they would get these spokespeople to speak in the language of those they wanted to conquer, and they would say things like, who do you think you are, and who are your gods that can stand against uh, us, because none of the other gods that of these other nations have been able to stand against us. Now, this is the context of Psalm 126. The spokesperson of Assyria called the Rabshakeh has given a letter to King Hezekiah telling him that his God can't feat, defeat the Assyrians. The odds are overwhelming. Again, over 200,000 to 10,000. They're almost out of food. The people are disenfranchised and weary. And unless something changes, every last one of them are going to die. Now, I'm not sure of the situation of everyone I'm talking to this morning. But I want to encourage you that wherever you are in life, whatever you've done, Whatever haunts you in your past, whatever you're struggling with, however you feel about life, about yourself, about others, and maybe however you feel about even God, if you're at the point of giving up, if you're at the point of giving in, or maybe at the point of not going on, if you're tired of failure, so much so that you don't even want to try, whatever your situation is, I want you to understand that God can. 
Some people get excited about a new year. Others dread it because they're reminded of what didn't happen in the previous year. Now, if that is you, I want you to know that God can this year. Now, maybe you've experienced recently loss. And for you, sometimes it feels like you are overwhelmed by grief to the point that all you do is cry. And sometimes it feels like as you're functioning in life, you can't even breathe. But my friend, I want you to understand that God can get you through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, maybe right now you are one with, you are in a relationship, and the one that you thought would be your mate for the rest of your life, you and that person are at odds. And it seems like it's all going to end. The hurt, the pain, the words that can never be taken back have wounded you to a place that it seems like you can't go on. I want you to know that even though the odds seem overwhelming, God can. Maybe by thoughts of low self-esteem, low self-worth, low self-esteem, poor self-image, depressive and suicidal thoughts. I want you to know that God can help you to understand that your life is precious. And that you, he has fearfully and wonderfully made you through the siege that you're facing with discouragement. When all hope is lost, God can. When the odds are overwhelming, God can. When times are tough, God can. When you feel like you can't go on, God can help you. When you feel like you can't forgive, God can help you to forgive. When all seems to be crumbling around you, God can show you that although you may have to face the realities of your situation, he will never leave you nor forsake you as you deal with difficult circumstances. God can. Listen, God can. He can. How do I know? Because he did. And that's what we see in our psalm this morning. We see that he did. Now, as we look at our text this morning, I want you to see the reason for joy. The reason for joy. They could rejoice because God saved them. Notice what it says. It says, when the Lord turned again, that captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Now, God turned their captivity. When it seemed like they were all going to die, when it seemed like all hope was lost, they turned to the Lord and the Lord delivered them. The Assyrian spokesman told the people of Judah that they would be no different than the other nations that tried to stand against them, and they were all going to die. In fact, here's his words found in 2 Kings chapter 18. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Seraphim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. 
That's literally the words of the guy known as the Rabshakeh bringing a message from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, saying, Who do you think you are? Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet totally give their situation and all of these insurmountable odds and all of these dire circumstances and they get down on their face and the Bible says that they put their letter down in the temple of the Lord and they cried out to God and here's what the Bible goes on to say. It says, and it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. That's a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they, I love this in the King James, it says, and when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. <laughs> like, how does the dead person behold anything? <laughs> 185,000 Assyrian soldiers never woke up. And then the Bible goes on to say, So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. Now, against overwhelming odds, against insurmountable circumstances, against superior warriors and forces, God took out the most advanced, powerful army of this day. And they turned tail and went home. And for the people of Judah, it was like a dream come true. In their wildest dreams, they could have never imagined this. There was no earthly way this should have happened. There was no way with their 10,000 people, men, women, and children behind the walls of Jerusalem that they could have ever defeated over 200,000 trained soldiers, but God could. And he did. And he did. And that's why the Bible says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. I want you to understand that God can still save us from difficult circumstances, even situations of our own making. And when God does, and when he does allow it to take place, it can be like a dream come true. It can be like we went to sleep, and we woke up, and all of the problem was solved, and we didn't do anything to fix it. That's what he can do. So I'm asking you this morning, what are you facing now that you need God to act and work in? What are the overwhelming circumstances piled up in your life? What is in your life right now that seems like an impossibility? And I want you to understand this, that God can help you as you see those things through. Here's what the Bible still says in Ephesians 3.20. It says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. You see, God is still in the business of doing amazing things. God is still in the business of changing the tides of battle. 
God is still in the business of giving us victory. God is still in the business of allowing us to see miracles take place. God can still do those things. And he is in the business of saving us. But he's also in the business of saving souls. Now, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is. Here's what we need to understand. God wants to give man eternal life, and that life is through his son. The Bible says of Jesus, it says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And when we have salvation, we have a reason to rejoice. Like the people of Judah, they had a reason to rejoice because God saved them. When we get saved, we have a reason to rejoice. Our destiny has changed from being pointed to hell to then being pointed to heaven. Our sins are forgiven. We're unloosed from the bondage of sin, not only the penalty of sin, which is death and hell, but also the practice of sin. Jesus gives us the ability to be free from it. You see, God can save you if you allow him. And here's the thing, and, and when we get saved, there's joy. Here's what the Bible tells us in Peter. It says, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though you, not, you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. When I think of my salvation, every time I, I think back on my salvation and what salvation really is, my soul is overwhelmed with joy because I realize that no man can ever pluck me from the Father's hand. But the Bible goes on to say this in 1 Peter verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, man is made up of body, soul, spirit, and mind. Our soul is who we are. And in that soul, we understand there's our body, there is our mind, and there is our essence, our spirit. And, and, and for some of us, we deal with difficulties in our body now. Arthritis, cancer, debilitating sickness, debilitating illness. But here's the hope for every Christian that someday... Because of our salvation in Jesus Christ, not only are we going to be delivered from the afflictions of the mind, the things that we struggle with in our thoughts, not only are we going to be uh, delivered from uh, this world and everything that's in it on our spirit, but we're also going to be delivered from this body someday. Receiving the end of your salvation the salvation of your souls. That's all of us. And so whatever we face today, whether it's in our body or in our mind or in our spirit, we understand this as a Christian. We have hope that transcends anything that we face, and that should give us pause to rejoice. You see, they rejoiced because God saved them in spite of their insurmountable circumstances. They rejoiced and glorified God because God changed 
their situation. The Bible again says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Verse 2, it says, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Verse 3, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Now, after realizing what God had done for them in defeating Sennacherib's army, they knew that they could not attribute the victory to their resilience, to their military superiority, to their cunning tactics. The only one they could point to in that miracle was God. And this led them to be filled with laughter and singing and bringing glory to God. Now, let me say this. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have seen God do things that there's no other way to explain it outside of Him. When my wife and I made our way out west, first of all, from Melbourne, Florida to Rancho Cucamonga, California, we were excited about the opportunity not only to start a church in Rancho Cucamonga, but we were also excited about the possibilities we found out before we left Florida that my wife was three months pregnant. We're going to start a church, we're going to give birth to a church, and looks like we're going to give birth to a, a brand new baby, boy or girl. I remember traveling out, we were in Nevada, and we're in this U-Haul, and you know how in your pregnancy, ladies, you start to feel uncomfortable, you start in the heat, you swell and things like that. My wife was feeling some of those uncomfortabilities and things, uh, but we were excited about the possibilities of starting a new church and then bringing a new baby into the world. And once we got situated into our, uh, our place of residence, just a couple of weeks later, we, we decided to set up with a doctor and, and, and make sure everything was okay going on in the pregnancy. That's, it's three months, and we realize, okay, it's, 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 it looks like it, it's a legitimate pregnancy, and we need to make sure everything's all taken care of. And so we went to see a local doctor there in Rancho Cucamonga, and and as she examined my wife, she said, you know what, uh, when do you think, uh, and, and, and how old do you think the baby is, and so on. And she said, something seems wrong with the, the size of the baby, and things don't seem right uh, uh, inside. I want you to go to a specialist at Pomona Valley Hospital down the road and, and make sure you do uh, this high-tech ultrasound, and, and, and we want to make sure everything is okay. And so we went to Pomona Valley the next week, and the doctor there said, uh, 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 okay, well, let's, let's do this. Let's drink lots of fluids and so on. And my wife got down on the table there and they did their high-tech ultrasound and wanted to determine blood movements in different areas of the, the, the baby's body and so on. And, and, and as uh, we were looking there through the ultrasound, the doctor said, something doesn't seem right. Why don't you guys go have some more lunch and, and, or go get some lunch and then have some more water. And, and my wife and I, we did that. We came back and at the end of the appointment, the doctor looked at my wife and I and she said, this baby has a condition known as Potter synapse or Potter syndrome. This baby has developed in the womb without kidneys and bladder, a bladder. This baby has no chance of living. And then the doctor said this, let's terminate the pregnancy. My wife at that information was a little bewildered and just how do you hear something like that? And I told her, I said, uh, Doc, uh, 
I don't think that's an option for us. Then the doctor said, well, your wife also has a condition called placenta previa. The uterus and the uh, placenta are pulling away from each other, and if you go through with the pregnancy, you run the risk of, of her hemorrhaging, and not only would the baby die, but there's a possibility that you, Elizabeth, would die as well. And she really pressed us on abortion. So that's not, not an option, not what we're going to do. Elizabeth, not an option. And so she was a little upset at us. We did not succumb to her doctor demands, and because of that, uh, she no longer wanted to see us, and she referred us to another specialist that we could see a couple weeks later, and so we went to see that specialist a couple weeks later and went through the same process of ultrasounds and, and uh, research and so on, and this, the same prognosis came back. Th that doctor then said, uh, the baby has Potter's syndrome. Uh, uh, there's really not a, a lot of chance that this baby will live, but we can pray and hope for the best because she knew what we had said at the previous appointment. No chance. You see, the kidneys and the bladder allow fluid to accumulate in the, the womb. And the fluid in the womb allows for the lungs, as the baby is developing, to become porous and to develop. And obviously, the fluid in the womb allows the baby to take shape and form instead of being one mass of flesh. And according to the doctors, our baby had none of that. And so while this was going on, we continued to see the regular OBGYN doctor that uh, sent us to the specialist to begin with, and she became more adamant that uh, we were young and impressionable pe young people that didn't know what we were doing, and she was the doctor, and she knew what she was doing, and she uh, uh, had education, and we seemingly didn't have any education, and, and who are we to defy the orders of a doctor suggesting something that's good for not only uh, the baby, but for us as well and our mental health, and she didn't even realize the situation. And about five months into the pregnancy, we got insurance through a supporting church uh, in Lancaster. And we started seeing another group of doctors at Kaiser Permanente in Fontana. And the doctors had the same prognosis, no kidneys, no bladder. They knew our wishes and they knew our desires. And, and, and during that time, because there was uh, uh, some complications, we were in the, 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 the OBGYN doctor uh, uh, or OBGYN area uh, almost once a week because there were some, some, some problems in the pregnancy. And we, we were wondering if maybe that uh, uh, hemorrhaging thing might take place. And so we were at the hospital at least once or twice a week, all the while we're trying to start a church in Southern California. At seven months, our high-risk pregnancy doctor, Dr. Jerry Yu, was looking at my wife under the ultrasound for our normal high-risk pregnancy appointment. And he had seen my wife at emergency appointments uh, probably half a dozen or more times, and other doctors had seen us as well at Kaiser and while he's looking at the ultrasound, a tear starts to come from his eye. 
And up until this time, there's no chance this baby will live, like really no chance, point zero zero something or other chance that this baby has any chance of living. While he's looking at the ultrasound, a tear comes from his eye and he says, this baby has a full bladder. And I said, well, doc, I, I took biology. A baby can't have a full bladder unless it has some kidneys. And all up until this time, the ultrasounds never showed any blood movement in the kidney area in our baby. There was never any amniotic fluid in the womb indicating there were no kidneys and there was no bladder. But as he's looking, he says, this baby has a full bladder. I said, doc, a baby can't have a full bladder unless it has some kidneys. And he says, I know. And then right there, as we're looking on the ultrasound, the baby expelled her bladder. And he starts to cry. And he says, if this baby lives, I'm going to have a wonderful story to tell. Two weeks later, at seven and a half months, whatever water there was broke. It was Sunday. We had just had church. We had a guest speaker. We went out to eat. And then we realized it's going down. I took Elizabeth to the hospital, got her all checked in, got her all in the room. They were going to deliver through cesarean section. And I said, I got to get a camera. Because even though there were kidneys at that point at seven months, and even though uh, there was amniotic fluid, that the doctor still told us that she'd probably only live for a couple of minutes because her lungs did, uh, would not have developed because there was no amniotic fluid to develop them and to be, allow them to become porous, and, and her, she'd probably be a little bit deformed and so on. And so I wanted to have a camera. This is before cell phones, okay, folks, all right? I wanted to have a camera to get pictures of her while she was alive. And our prayer was that God would allow her to be a, a healthy child and God would allow her to grow to an old age and God would allow a miracle to happen. But we were willing to submit to whatever God's will was, whatever he chose to allow it to happen in our lives. I went to Walmart for whatever reason that Sunday. They were closing early. And I told the lady at the checkout what I was doing and she said, I'll pay for the camera, go. <laughs> and I left. I got to the hospital just in time and I gowned up and they were pulling Victoria out. And as they cut the umbilical cord, they said, she's probably just going to live for a couple of minutes and that's going to be it. She'll stop crying. She will, she will no longer have breath of life. And they cut the cord and she kept crying and kept crying and she's still crying today. <laughs> we didn't do that. There was nothing we could do to do that. Everyone said we were crazy. Everyone said there was no way Everyone said it was an impossibility. 
Everyone said we should give up. There's no hope. And we said God can. And here's what happened. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. I'm sure that the neighboring countries that had aligned with Assyria were chomping at the bit to take all of Israel's or Judah's land and possessions. They kept watching and waiting. They kept hoping that they'd be able to take over their fertile fields, their walled cities, their olive yards, their vineyards, and their fruit tree groves. But God took out the Assyrian army and the people that did not believe in the God of the Bible took note and said, the Lord hath done great things for them. God has done some great things for them. The Rabshakeh came and expressed how the gods of the other nations were unable to deliver them and all the other nations had seen that their gods were powerless to help. But, but here the surrounding nations were able to see that there was a God still at work on behalf of his people. Victoria, her kidneys and her bladder were fine. But somewhere in the pregnancy, she ended up developing a heart defect. She had a, a ventral septal defect. The two lower chambers of her heart were kind of like Swiss cheese. And so when that happens, your heart has to work a little harder. And when your heart works a little harder, it enlarges itself so it can get bigger to pump more blood, uh, to get oxygen all throughout the body. And and so at first, they didn't know what was going on. They, they thought there might still be some problem with the kidneys and the bladder because that's what they had initially said when she was in the womb. And, and uh, so it took them about uh, a week or two to figure out exactly what was going on. And once they figured out what was going on, she still was in the NICU for the first two, two and a half months of her life. When she was finally able to come home, God had allowed us to, to assemble all the cash that we needed to before we got insurance through Kaiser, we were complete cash patients and we were tens of thousands of dollars uh, in, in medical bills and God also took care of those. And I had one last payment to make at the initial OBGYN doctor and we were wanting to make that, that, that payment while we were coming home from Kaiser going to our house there in Rancho Cucamonga. And so on the way home, we stopped at the doctor's office. And when the doctor's office uh, 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 pronounced that we were there, the Zamoras are here, uh, uh, Elizabeth's doctor asked Elizabeth to go back in the back because she wanted to see Elizabeth. And there was a rattle in the office because like we were kind of notoriety to them just because of our, uh, we were starting a church and we handled ourselves maybe a little different. And we did not uh, uh, kind of succumb to the whims of the doctor, if you will. And we were polite and kind and joyous, even in spite of all that stuff. And, and so Elizabeth went back to talk to the doctor and I was up at the front paying the bill and I had Victoria in her car carrier. She had a little nasal cannula and a little oxygen tank with her because she was having some heart problems. And so I paid the bill and I walked on back with the car carrier and her oxygen tank. And there was Elizabeth talking to the doctor and the doctor looks at Elizabeth. The doctor looks at me. The doctor looks at Victoria in the car seat and the, the oxygen tank and, and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And she finally says, 
who is this? Pointing at Victoria. And I said, Doc, I'm glad you asked. I wasn't mean, I wasn't unkind. I said, this is the doctor, or I'm sorry, excuse me, this is the baby that you so adamantly were against us having. This is the baby that you gave us no chance she would live. This is the baby that you were pressuring us to abort. That's who this is. She was pregnant herself at the time. And she looked at me and she looked at Elizabeth and she looked at the baby and she said, next time I run into problems, she was Hindu. She said, I'm not going to pray to my gods. I'm going to pray to your God. And that's what happened here. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. In that whole process, people in admitting came to Jesus Christ. In that whole process, doctors who were never open to the gospel or the gospel truth received the gospel. In that whole process, nurses ended up coming to Christ. X-ray techs ended up coming to Christ. Other, the family members of those people ended up coming to Christ. Dozens of people coming to Christ and, and still in church today. And here's what God does. God can do that which nobody can do. God can still do the impossible. And when everyone sees it, they know. But notice how the tenor of the text changes. God can do anything, and when he does, he desires to use it as an opportunity to bring us to a place of spiritual renewal so that we can continue to see him do extraordinary things. Notice the text as we look at the call for spiritual renewal. Here's Hezekiah's prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord. Now, Hezekiah was a great king. So much so that the Bible says of him in 2 Kings chapter 18, it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah. It says, nor any that was before him. In, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, we, we, we learn that he removes the high places. He, breaks down, he breaks, down, it breaks down the idols. He cuts down the groves that are used for false worship. He breaks the brazen serpent that Moses held up and the people looked to, and he calls it Nehushtan, which means just a piece of brass. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we see that he does some positive things. He opens up the doors of the house of the Lord. They begin to use it again. And then he cleanses the house of the Lord. And 2 Chronicles chapter 30, he commands offerings and worship to take place. He reinstitutes worship at Jerusalem and specifically at the temple. He takes down all other altars outside of Jerusalem and in the temple. Reformation had taken place. People had gotten their act together. 
There was religious activity. From the outside looking in, you would have thought they were following the Lord, but it was a mirage. Their hearts and their lives were spiritual deserts. They were dry, and they were empty. And they needed the Lord to bring rivers of water to their barren lives. That's what his prayer is. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. You see, God had delivered the people of Judah from physical captivity from the Assyrians, but Hezekiah still saw them in captivity because spiritually speaking, they were content with the same old, same old spiritual situation. Hezekiah wanted streams. Hezekiah wanted life where there had not been. So we ask for spiritual renewal. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. Do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember the overwhelming sense of joy that you had knowing that your destiny was forever changed? Do you remember the weight of sin that was lifted off your soul and your heart? Do you remember telling people, hey, I got saved. Look at what Jesus has done to me. I have a home in heaven. Do you remember when you first got saved? How much more renewal can you get than when it all begins, when it's new? Do you remember that? Don't you want more than what you always had with the Lord? Don't you want to constantly sense the overwhelming presence of God in the good times and bad times? Don't you want to see God answer your prayers, take care of your circumstances, and deal with the obstacles that only he can deal with? Don't you want to experience life and words of life and reading his words of life and instruction of life as you hear preaching and teaching? And it's not just the preacher preaching and the preacher giving words or a teacher teaching and a teacher giving words, but God literally talking to you and moving on your heart and chipping away the things that don't need to be there for a closer relationship with those around you, your spouse, your family, your friends, and most importantly with your God. Hezekiah's prayer was, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. And then he gives a plan for renewal. He says, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, Hezekiah didn't want to see one victory Hezekiah wanted the people to live in victory. Did you get that? And the only way that can happen is through brokenness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Let me ask you this morning, are you broken? Are you broken or are you lifted up in pride? A good indicator is how we live. If we are in constant dependence upon God, 
If we are living lives understanding our utter and complete dependence on God for every area of our lives, victory over the flesh, dealing with sinful thoughts, giving God our burdens, we then are living broken lives. If not, we're probably doing it on our own and as a result, lifted up in pride, thinking that we don't need God. Now, do you understand that you don't have what you need? Do you understand that God is really what you need? You see, the victory that God gave the people of Israel should have led them to be forever endeared and indebted to God, living in dependence upon him for everything. But within a generation, Hezekiah's son Manasseh came. The Bible says he led Israel to sin. How do we live in victory? We need to be broken. We need brokenness. We need to understand we don't have what we need on our own. We need God for everything. Give us this day our daily bread. We need God even for our daily bread. You say, well, pastor, I work, and pastor, I have skills, and pastor, I have a mind, and pastor, I have tenacity. We need God for everything. Not only do we need brokenness, but we need the word. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. You see, God's word gives us God's mind. God's word gives us God's perspective. God's word gives us God's instruction. God's word builds our faith. So then faith cometh by hearing, the Bible says, and by hearing the word of God. Now, how do we allow God to do his work in us so he can continue to give us victory regardless of what we face? We need his word. We need his word in us. We need his word all around us. That's why reading your Bible is so important. That's why being in church and hearing the Bible is so important. That's why memorizing the scripture is so important. That's why thinking about scriptural songs are so important. That's why meditating upon the Bible is so important. We need the word of God to be our guide in life. Here's what the Bible says in Jeremiah. It says, the prophet that hath the dream, let him tell him a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaketh the rocks in pieces? You see, God's word is a fire to fire us up. God's word is a fire to consume what doesn't need to be in our lives. God's word is a fire to keep us going when we're down. But it's also a hammer to get those things out that don't need to be there. And then we see the result. We see the harvest. Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, the way to live in victory knowing that God can do anything, including giving us patience and strength and fortitude to deal with heartache, is brokenness, is humility, is dependence on God for everything, and then being rooted in his word. Now, what do you need to believe in God in here in 2023? What armies are assembled outside of your walls? 
What overwhelming, impossible odds do you need God to overcome? God can. He can. He can. And this card is just a stewardship of that. These are little things that we can do to put ourselves in the position to where God can do his work in our lives. If we are seeking financial health, God can give us financial health. If we are in the word, God can speak to us through his word. If we are sharing our faith, God then can use his word uh, to bring some fruit from us sharing the seed of his word. Uh, if we're celebrating uh, the resurrection and what Jesus has done for us and, and people are seeing that, we're most likely going to help bring people to God and God is the one who can finish that for us. God can do all these things. And you can make a commitment to follow us this year in these simple tasks, and we will pray for you. You take the top part, we'll, we'll take the bottom part. You don't have to put your name down. You can put your initials down. Some of you have been here for years. You know we've done this in the past, and I'll guarantee you every week we'll pray for anybody that's committed to one or all of these things, putting yourself in a position to see God work in your life. Here's what I'm going to do at the end of the service here. I am going to ask us all to pray. Right there at your seat, I'm going to ask you to spend a moment or two. We're going to pray in silence. You can talk to God. You can talk out loud to God there at your seat if you want to. But we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to do what only he can do in 2023. So let's all join in prayer this morning.